Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we come to the conclusion of our study, Knowing and Growing, from 2 Peter. In this week's message, Peter leaves his final written instructions to scattered Christians, summarizing what their lives as Christians ought to reflect. Turn to 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18, as we hear, Faithful to the Finish, from Pastor David Wilson. I couldn't really tell if you liked that or not. <laughs> I'm telling you what, that, it doesn't get any better than that right there. It just does it. Let's look at the last recorded words of the Apostle Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now, these aren't the last words of Peter, but they're the last recorded words of Peter because probably within a year after this letter was written, he was executed for his faith. Traditions tell us that he was crucified, but he did not want to be crucified like the Lord. He asked to be crucified upside down. Um, what do you say to a group of people when you know this is the last opportunity that you have to speak to them? What does a coach say to a team that's about to go out to play a game or finish the half or whatever? This is the kind of the attitude and the intensity that he has to wrap up what he's been saying in these three chapters, beginning in verse 17. You'll see that he's basically telling them, you be faithful to the finish. You be faithful till Jesus gets back. But talking about the second coming, you be faithful. You stay with it. There was a young pastor who was sitting in a restaurant eating lunch. He opened a letter from his mother he got that morning. And when he did, a $20 bill fell out of it. And he, he thought to himself, thanks, mom. I could use that right about now. And as he finished his meal, he noticed a beggar outside on the sidewalk leaning up against the light post. He thought that fellow could probably use the $20 more than I could. So he crossed out the names on the envelope and put the $20 in the envelope and wrote across the top in large letters, persevere. So as not to make a scene, he put the envelope under his arm and dropped it as he walked past the man. The man picked it up, read the message, smiled. The next day, while the pastor was eating his lunch, the same man tapped him on the shoulder and handed him a big wad of money. Surprised, the young pastor asked him, what's this for? And the man replied, this is your half. Persevere came in first, finished 30 to 1 <laughs> yesterday at the track. Now, we're not going to talk about persevere, that persevere. But every Christian ought to aim at finishing well. Steadfastness and perseverance are huge themes in the New Testament. 
to stay with it, to not quit. One lesson we learned from the parable of Jesus when he was talking about the man sowing seed, he said two types of ground, the, the uh, seed sprang up quickly, the, the stony ground, it sprang up quickly, but then it died. And he said, the other seed fell on thorny ground and it sprang up quickly, but the thorns choked it out. But the only seed that produced fruit was in the good soil and it persevered and it bore good fruit. There's probably no other Christian in history that can match the accomplishments of the apostle Paul. And yet at the end of his life, the last letter that he wrote was second Timothy. He didn't list all of his accomplishments. He didn't brag on all the churches that he started. He didn't say, look what I've done. He basically spoke about his perseverance. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. The writer of Hebrews several times in that book emphasizes the need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1. And as Peter finishes this letter, this epistle, he wants his readers to persevere. Quickly, he repeats the three basic things that he's talked about in the whole letter. He talks about growing in the Lord. He talks about watching for false teachers. And he talks about giving God the glory and looking for his return. You'll notice what he says in verse 17. You, therefore... Beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, steadfastness, not steadfastness. <laughs> I can assure you, my friends, if you're a public speaker, you're going to have errors like that from time to time. I'd like to, I'd like to fall from my own steadfastness, wouldn't you? <laughs> lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. He gives us three essentials, three points, three essentials for being faithful to the finish. He says, first of all, to be faithful to the finish, you're going to have to live a life of conscious precaution. Now, he's already warned us, and the New Testament clearly warns us that there are going to be people who will infiltrate the church, and they will use Scripture, but they will teach error. The enemy's real good at that, counterfeiting things. And counterfeits are never the real thing. And so he says, you beware because people are going to come in and they're going to sound legit. They're going to sound real because they'll pull out a verse of scripture. But you need to beware and don't ever let your guard down. You can't let your guard down. I got taken this week. I'm not real proud of it. I, I usually pride myself in spotting and smelling a rat. This rat had perfume on it. <laughs> what I mean by that is I, he, he took a hundred bucks from me. I'm a lot wiser now, so don't try it. But you know what? You can't ever let your guard down. 
People can sound legit. This person sounded legit, trying to buy a couple of tickets. He sounded legit, said several things that made it sound legit. I didn't pay him all of it, obviously, but what I did pay him, he took. The same is true in the church. You may say, well, that guy sounds legit. After all, he's pretty successful. After all, he's got a lot of people following him. After all, he did quote scripture. But I want to tell you, just because somebody quotes scripture doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. Because you have to interpret scripture correctly. You've got to keep it in the context. And we talked about that a week or so ago. I want you to notice when he says in in verse 17, you. He's contrasting. It's emphatic. He's, He's contrasting the false teachers. He said, but you, you are different from them. And you know beforehand, you know how they work. You, therefore, since you know this, you already know how they work and you know it beforehand. Now, the word beforehand is an interesting word that we get our word prognosis from. And a prognosis enables you to get ready so that some predicted danger will not catch you unaware. If the doctor were to tell you, look, You need to lose weight or you're going to have a heart attack. You need to lose weight or you're going to develop diabetes. You need to lose weight or something's going to happen. Then you have the choice. You've been given the prognosis. You've been told if you do this, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. Or sometimes if you do this, then this will happen. He said, you already know there are false teachers in the world. They look legitimate. They may use scripture. They may be religious, but you know better. You know this beforehand. Do not let down your guard. And why does he tell them that? Did you notice the word beloved? The fourth time he's used that word in this one chapter, he used it in verse one. He used it in verse eight, verse 14 and verse 17. And the reason is he loves them so much that he warns them about what's going to happen. Just like you do. You, you, you told your children when they were small, you loved them enough that you warned them, do not play in the street. You get run over. And then when they got a little bit older, you warned them, don't take drugs, don't drink, don't have sex before marriage, because you know that those kinds of things can leave scars that affect the rest of your life. You loved them enough to tell them, and sometimes love has a negative side of it because you don't want them to get hurt. And Peter is warning them of the destructive nature of the false teachers. And then he says... You, you know what they're going to do, and so you don't go there so that you don't fall from your own steadfastness. This is the only place the noun form of this Greek word is used. However, and this is really interesting, the verb form of this word is the word that Jesus used when he was talking to Peter it's recorded in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, and he said, when you have turned again, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Peter, who had been so unstable, was changed by God's grace into a rock of steadfastness. He's saying to them, don't fall from your solid stance. Don't waver. 
He probably remembered what Jesus told him. Because how many times did Peter promise something that he did not follow through on? Folks, please don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you see on television, especially when it comes to TV preachers, unless you compare it to the Word of God. I, I want you to compare what I say to God's Word. Don't take my word for it. I'm not perfect. I, may tell, I, I don't intend to tell you something wrong, but if I ever do and you can prove it with the Word of God, I want you to come to me and talk with me about it. I'm not saying I'm always right. But I'm telling you, don't take anyone's word for it. Compare it to Scripture. Don't let down your guard. You'll be easy prey. These cults take more Southern Baptists probably than any other denomination. Suck them right into the cult because they sound legitimate, they sound good, and they're nice. And all you got to do is be nice to somebody and they'll believe you. A life of conscious precaution. Be conscious. Be steadfast. But also, he said, you need to live a life of continual progression. Grow. You know, there's two ways to get the top of an oak tree. Two ways. You can climb up one, get to the top, or you can sit on an acorn. You're going to sit there a long time. A lot of people are trying to grow in the Lord like a person sitting on an acorn. You know, Peter did a lot of growing in his ministry with Christ. He wavered. He was all over the place. If there was anybody that was impetuous, it was him. He was hot and cold. He was up and down like a yo-yo. He said, Jesus, I'll follow you, though all others forsake you. And then a few days later, you find him denying he even knows him, Matthew 26. Peter was a slow learner. He had spiritual ADD, attention deficit disorder. I had a buddy one time tell me that Christ could probably have finished his ministry in two and a half years instead of three and a half if he hadn't had to keep explaining things to Peter. <laughs> but though he was slow, he learned his lessons well, and he eventually earned his name, The Rock. He was steadfast. At the, and at the end of his life, the last recorded words he has, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you say grow in the Lord, that implies a few things. Did you know growth implies a few things? First of all, to grow, you have to have life. Nothing that is dead grows, does it? Just like in physical life, a person has life, they begin to grow. Spiritual life is the same way. We all are dead spiritually. Ephesians 1, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that we're all dead in our trespasses and sin because we were born with a sinful nature. And so who gives us life? Say it. Jesus. You see, religion doesn't give you life. A church does not give you life. A person on this earth does not give you life. Only Jesus gives you life. In fact, 
the most, one of the most religious people recorded in the New Testament, Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was moral. Jesus told him in John 3, 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So you have to have life. You can sit in church and not have life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Growth also is not an option. It's like riding a bicycle. If you aren't moving, you fall over, you fall off. If a child is not growing, they have a serious health problem. But unlike children, spiritual growth does not have an end. No physical growth, we get to a certain height, then we start growing out. But spiritual growth does not have an end to it. You continually grow. And we've got to keep growing until we meet Jesus. After, after more than 25 years of following Christ, Paul writes in Philippians 3, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We never reach the place where we say, I've arrived. I'm spiritually mature. I can't grow anymore. You keep growing till Jesus gets here. Growth also is gradual. It's not instantaneous. Even Jesus started out as a baby on earth. No one moves from being a baby to an adult in a day or week or even a few years. It takes time. You don't bring a newborn home and say, there's the refrigerator, there's the bathroom. Now you just take care of yourself. You don't expect a baby to do what a 20-year-old can do, nor do you expect a 20-year-old to have the maturity of a 60-year-old. Growth is a process. The important thing to remember is then the process, to be involved in the process so there is progress in your life. You may not discern the change from week to week, but over the long haul, you should be able to look back over your life and say, you know, this is where I started. I can see where I have made progress in the Lord. The fact that growth is gradual sort of disagrees with the popular concept that if I have a certain spiritual experience... I will have instant growth. If I get baptized in the Holy Spirit, or if I have some kind of gift experience or some kind of thing that happens to me, then I'm instantly mature. But not, not according to the Scripture. In fact, God's way to godliness is through discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Exercise yourself toward godliness. Amen. It's a long process. Most of us think, well, I'll get it through the drive through window. I'll come every now and then. You cannot grow in the Lord sitting on the acorn. Climbing. You've got to climb. You've got to discipline yourself. You've got to grow. Growth is difficult also. It's not easy. You crawled, you crawled before you walked. And even after you started walking, you still fell down. Spiritual growth is the same way. Sometimes you learn some hard lessons by trial and error. Sometimes, sometimes you learn some hard lessons. You learn to trust the Lord. Sometimes we kind of get the big head and said, you know what? I finally, I finally licked this. The next thing you know, you fall. 
And you're humbled and reminded, Lord, I've always got to trust on you. Growth depends on life. It's not an option. It's, it's gradual and it's difficult. So what does it mean to grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Folks, have you gotten a handle on grace? Have you? Because grace is the key to the relationship with God. He saves us by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And we are sustained by his grace, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But did you know grace is opposed to what you, how you and I think? Because we grew up in the merit system. We did. You study hard, you make good grades, you make good grades, you may go to school, you go to school and graduate, you may get a good job, you work hard at your good job, hopefully you get a raise and a promotion and so forth. We are good at the merit system. In fact, every religion in the world, every religion in the world, except for the church of Jesus Christ, even some who call themselves Christian operate on the merit system. They're earning it. They do. I mean, when somebody says you have to, you have to be, take communion to be saved, you have to be granted this right before you die, and blah, 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 blah. It's all merit. All the religions of the world are earning it. All the false altars, all the false idols, everybody worships. They're trying to earn it, earn it, earn it. You get into heaven based on what you've done, they think. Feeds our pride. Helps us feel like we're making progress. But grace, it's opposed to the merit system. In fact, it means undeserved favor. What did we deserve? The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I deserved death and I deserved hell, even though hell wasn't created for man. But the gift of God, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life through, finish it with me, Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace. Paul wrote it so well. Listen to Romans 4. Listen to this verse. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You're saved by faith, by God's grace. It's amazing, isn't it? How do we grow in the grace which comes from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? 
It means coming to a greater understanding of the holiness and the righteousness and the sovereignty of God and then realizing that we are so far from that. We see our own sin and we see our own selfishness and pride. And the more and more you begin to see that, the more unworthy you feel to be even saved. And then you begin to say, Lord, I don't even know why you saved me. But thank you for your grace. That's why pride is such a big sin to God because in your own pride, you think you're about halfway good enough. You know, I, I used to think I was born with extra credit. I mean, when you're born in the pastor's home and your mom plays the piano while she's carrying you as a child, I mean, that ought to be extra credit. I've been in church nine months since I was born, before I was born. And after all, my dad's a pastor. That ought to be extra credit. Some of y'all were raised in a Christian home. That ought to be extra credit. Some of you have been in church all your life. Sorry. There's no extra credit with grace. None. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? And the more you realize it, the more you grow in the grace of the Lord, the more you realize how sinful you have been, and yet he's forgave you and he has saved you, and you don't deserve it. When you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, you will be sure to grow in humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones affirms the same thing. He said, personally, I can be certain I am growing in grace if I have an ever-increasing sense of my own sinfulness and my own unworthiness. If I see more and more the blackness of my own heart, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know why God saved me other than he loved me and gave me his grace. And you know what? You might can hide your sin from other people, but God still knows it. And it's going to come out one day. I got amused at a pastor who went to see some people in his congregation. And about the time he stepped up on the front porch, the front door burst open and swung back against the house with a bang. And out came a red-faced man. And right on his heels was a red-faced woman with a frying pan. And they saw the preacher. And they quickly straightened up. The man smiled and said, Preacher, I tell you, we have more fun than anyone on this block. <laughs> And you may look good in front of someone else, but the fact is, when you understand your own sin, God forgave you, and God saved you in spite of your sin. To grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this, I want you to notice something in that verse. This is the third time, this is the third time he said, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot separate Jesus Christ as Savior from Jesus Christ as Lord. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you yield all of yourself that you know to all of Christ that you know. The Christian life is progressively growing in submission to Christ as through the Word of God you see more and more of who He is and more and more of who you are. Grow in knowledge of Jesus. You see, all the cults that false teachers, all of them, ask them who Jesus is. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know, do you know he is God? Do you know he's the second person of the Godhead? Do you know he wasn't created? 
There'll be people who will knock on your door and say he's the highest order of creation. He was created. He was not created. He is not brothers with Satan, as some who would say that. He is God. We believe in the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe in three gods. Islam says we believe in three gods. No, we don't. We believe in one God manifested three ways, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The more you learn about him, the more knowledge you have. Education, somebody said, is what's left over when you subtract what you've forgotten from what you learned. That's your education. Of course, now you have Siri or Alexa or whoever that tells you everything. She knows a lot about something, but she didn't know anything about Jesus. I'm telling you, ask her. She didn't know anything about Jesus. Some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. They don't study. They don't know who Jesus is. And unless you know more about Jesus today than you did this time last year, you are not a disciple of his. Because a disciple means a learner. And Paul states this truth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul mentions three things. He says you need to be steadfast, unmovable always abounding. Is your work steadfast? Three kinds of workers in a church. Shirkers, jerkers, workers. (laughs) Shirkers are like lily Christians. They toil, neither do they spin. Matthew 6, 28. That's way out of context there. (laughs) And their favorite verse is, I pray thee have me excused. Luke 14, 18. That's out of context too. Instead of standing on the promises, they sit on the premises. They aim at nothing. They hit it every time. Churches are full of willing workers. Some are willing to work. The rest are willing to let them. And what we need are more standbys and fewer bystanders. Need some people to work. We've got, at, we've got places in this church and we can't get people to fill. We need more camera operators. We need more drivers in the the carts. We need people to help us. A lot of different places. Workers, or shirkers, I should say, don't work. Jerkers are a slight improvement. Slight, because they'll start, but they don't finish. They quit, probably because the shirkers hurt their feelings. But then there are workers you know, you may not feel your abilities are, are that great. You may feel severely limited, but I want to tell you there's one ability that every child of God ought to have, and that is dependability. Let me tell you something. You may not think your work matters, but it does. Don't quit. Stopping at third base doesn't, doesn't add to the score any more than striking out does. A diamond is a chunk of coal that's stuck to its job. And because the shirkers and jerkers, every church has a few workers besides them, I I should say. They're the ones who work, and they're the ones that one day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. I'll make you rule over many things. 
We need people who are growing in their commitment, who are steadfast, immovable, who are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For those of you who serve here in so many different capacities, thank you for doing that. I don't know the names of what I'm about to tell you, but I know it happened because someone shared a testimony to one of our other members who then shared it with me. And again, I do not know the names, but one person was having such a hard time in life. They were about to give up. Went through a very dark time in their life. But they said one thing kept me going. The greeter at South Crest Baptist Church knew my name. And I knew when I went there on Sunday, I would be greeted with a smile. And my name would be called and somebody cared. Now you greeters probably think, you know what, I'm not really doing anything. Oh, yes, you are. And you folks that get people up to the building because they have to park so far away, you're doing such a great work. And you folks that are are helping behind the scenes, I, I can't begin to tell you everything. Do not ever think your work is not noticed. It is not in vain. Wilma didn't get much of a head start in life. In fact, she had a bout with polio as a child that left her left leg crooked and her foot twisted inward so she had to wear leg braces. After seven years of painful therapy, she could walk without her braces. At the age of 12, Wilma tried out for the girls' basketball team, but didn't make it. But she was determined. She practiced with a girlfriend and two boys every day. And the next year, she made the basketball team. When a college track coach saw her during a game, he talked her into letting him train her as a runner. And at the age of 14, she had outrun the fastest sprinters in the United States. In 1956, Wilma made the United States Olympic team, but she didn't show very well. That bitter disappointment motivated her to work harder. And for the 1960 Olympics in Rome, Wilma Rudolph won three gold medals, the most a woman had ever won at that time. Determination didn't quit. Paul used the word for abounding, always abounding. You know what that means? It means to do more than the minimum. We're, we're minimum people, aren't we? You want me to prove it? Y'all, let's go back to high school. Let's go back to high school. Teacher comes in and says, you're going to do a research paper. Yes, David. How many pages does it have to be? <laughs> Ten pages. How many resources do we have to use? Does it have to be typed? Does the footnotes, can they be on the last page or they got to be at the bottom of the page? Am I the only one who ever did that? Don't say yes because I know you're lying. You see, we're minimum people. Abounding means going above the minimum. Don't just get by. Lord, I want my work to abound. I want it to be good. And it's always, the Christian life is the life of always. 
and your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do you know if it's in vain or not? Ask yourself this question. Is it going to matter in a hundred years from now? Let me tell you, every life you touch, whether it's raising your children, whether it's your family, whether it's helping people in the church, whether it's helping other people, let me tell you, it will matter in a hundred years. But a lot of stuff we do, it's not going to matter in a hundred years. Finally, we need to live a life of ceaseless praising. Peter goes on to say, to him be the glory now and forever. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Here's something that speaks about the deity of Christ, because Peter is giving Jesus the glory, and God does not share his glory with anyone. Look up Isaiah 42, 8 and Isaiah 48, 11, and you'll see that God does not share his glory with anyone. But see, Jesus isn't just anyone. He is God. And it speaks of his deity. It speaks of the second person of the Godhead. And the overarching theme of the Christian life is to glorify God in everything. John the Baptist said, he must de- I must decrease, he must increase, John 3.30. Listen, folks. Your life is a trophy of God's grace. You bring glory to the Lord. Why? Because people may look at you and me and say, if God can save them, he can save me. And the accuser, Satan, obviously is always before the throne. It seems like we have an advocate. John, 1 John 1 tells us that we have an advocate. And, and yet, he's accusing and Jesus is standing there saying, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. I died for him. He's one of mine. Look what I've done in his life. I've forgiven him. I've forgiven her. Look what I've done in their life. I've forgiven them. I've delivered them. I have saved them. We need to live like God's done something for us. To give him the glory. In the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, the last of the marathon runners were being carried off the field to the first aid stations about an hour after the winner had crossed the finish line. So the ones in the very back were at least an hour later than the winner. There were just a few spectators in the stands when suddenly they heard the sound of sirens and police whistles. It was the back of the line. And all eyes turned to the gate to see John Stephen Aquari Wearing the colors of Tanzania, limping into the stadium, his leg was bloodied and bandaged from a very bad fall that he had taken, but he hobbled around the track past the finish line as the crowd rose and applauded as if he were the winner. Someone later asked him why he had not quit. He said, they said, there was no way you were going to win a medal. Why did you do that? He said, my country 
did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Folks, Christ did not give his life for you just to start the Christian life. He gave it so you and I could finish it and finish it well. But in order to finish it well, you're going to have to guard yourself from error and heresy. You're going to have to be progressing and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you live to glorify Jesus as your Savior. I come back to what I said earlier. You cannot grow unless you have life. You don't have life unless you have Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... They died immediately in their spirit. Man is created in the image of God. There's three parts to us, a spirit, soul, and body. Man died immediately in their spirit. Eventually their soul died. Eventually their body died. But when Jesus comes into your life, God's spirit comes into your spirit and gives you life. The church cannot give you life, whether it be Catholic, Episcopal, Methodist, Baptist. You may be a Methobabterian. It will not give you life. It won't. The Pope cannot give you life. No man on this earth is divine or can give you life. No preacher can give you life. Only Jesus. Not Mary. Mary can't give you life. Only Jesus. You turn from your sin, ask God to forgive you, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He saves you. He's the Lord of your life. It's not just praying a prayer. It's committing your life to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Pastor David. As we close out Peter's second epistle, we find that Peter's last written instructions included a warning of conscious precaution to avoid the error of lawless people, an exhortation of continual progression, growing both in grace and knowledge, and a closing encouragement of ceaseless praising of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All steps that we believers should be taking today as well. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.